Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series that we are doing on the book of Acts. We are about to enter part three of this study. And if you are following along in the notes, and I want to strongly urge you to get those notes, there are several ways to do that. Uh, you can download them directly from our website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and just follow the prompts there for the Book of Acts study. Uh, an even simpler way, if you're able to do it, is to subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast, and that way you automatically get every new uh, audio recording and any new notes as they are uploaded. It's a very simple way to keep up with any of the studies that are placed there. But if you are in the outline notes, we're on page 18, 19, somewhere around in there, but we want to very quickly move right into part 3, which begins on page 21 of the outline. Let me give just a quick recap and some final thoughts on chapter 1 of Acts and then we want to move right into chapter 2 which is the key to the whole book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, what they have been waiting for in the upper room, the power of God, the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you again, this is not just a Bible study to fill our heads with some more knowledge, although hopefully we are gaining some new knowledge, perhaps you're learning more about the history of the church, but our purpose goes beyond that. The Word of God, we're told in Hebrews 4, is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we want this word to come alive. We want to really enter into the life that we're about to learn about through the Spirit and through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we want to keep encouraging one another to be filled with the Spirit, to receive all that God has promised us. This is a free gift. It has nothing to do with us earning it, being holy enough or spiritual enough to deserve it. It's a gift of grace. And God, in His gracious love for us, has offered this to each and every one of His sons and daughters. And we saw last time in chapter 1 uh, some very important things that had to be put in order, as it were, before the promise of the Father could come. They were told very clearly, matter of fact, they were commanded by Jesus to wait in Jerusalem, sit down, is the word literally in Greek, sit down until you are endued with power from on high. And again, in Acts 1, Jesus emphasized that waiting until the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power. And one final thought on that, we're about to see that on the day of Pentecost, when they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, one of the first evidences of that was that they all spoke in other languages, they spoke in other tongues. But up until now, there's been no mention about waiting for the gift of tongues, all Jesus had been telling them was, wait for power. And I want to keep that emphasis before us. We need power. James, Peter, John, the other apostles, they needed power. That's what Jesus kept emphasizing to them. The work that we are called to do, the building of this thing called the church, is going to take supernatural power. We cannot do it. In human ability, we cannot do it with human models, with human plans, with human programs. We need the power of God if we're going to see the true church come alive 
and arise in great glory and power in these last days. So, they've been waiting for ten days. During that time, we're not given a lot of details, but I have to believe there was a lot of repentance, a lot of confession of sin, a lot of putting things right, a lot of reconciliation between those 120 who were in the upper room, and we can learn a lot from them. If we want Pentecost, if we want real revival in our churches in these last days, we better learn from the first church. We better learn the importance of coming together, being in unity, in harmony. It says they were all gathered together in one accord. And they were there praying, steadfastly praying, and seeking the Lord for His promise. That's a real key to revival. It's a real key if we want to see the Holy Spirit move in our lives and move in our churches. Often, things like sin, broken relationships, um, bad feelings toward one another, those are all things that can hinder the Holy Spirit. They had come to a place where the, the Scripture literally means they had one passion or one breath. They were all in one accord, in complete harmony. No more divisions, no more discord between this group and that group. And, you know, even to get 120 people in one accord is, is a pretty amazing thing. But by the time the day of Pentecost arrived, they were in one accord. They were in perfect harmony and unity. And one last little bit of business that is mentioned at the end of chapter 1 in Acts, I'm just going to mention, I really don't want to take a lot of time on it, not that it wasn't important, but I want to move right into chapter 2. It was this matter of finding a replacement for Judas. And you can read about it, and there are a couple of pages of notes here uh, in our outline if you want to look at it. There's an ongoing controversy about this whole thing, how they chose the twelfth apostle by casting lots. And the casting of lots is a biblical um, thing up until this time. And we don't see it again after the Holy Spirit was given, but this was a way that they sought the Lord's guidance, the Lord's decision on certain matters. And so they put these two men before the Lord, they cast lots, and this man Matthias was chosen to be Judas's replacement. Um, some argue this wasn't really God's plan, and we never even hear anything more about Matthias, and the twelfth apostle was really the apostle Paul, had they waited a little bit longer. God was already working on that twelfth replacement. The Bible doesn't say that, and we don't know for sure, there were more than 12 apostles, so whether this was just to fulfill that number of 12, it is interesting when we come to chapter 6, long before Saul of Tarsus came along, it does mention the 12. So they were considering Matthias as the 12th apostle, and that number 12 is used there. Um, Others argue that this was God's directed plan. God gave Peter the wisdom. He showed him certain Old Testament scriptures about finding a replacement for Judas, etc., etc. The bottom line is, we may never know until we get to the other side. We do know that in eternity, in Revelation 21, we read about the city of God. It has 12 foundations. And on those twelve foundation stones are the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Personally, I think I'm going to wait until we get there to find out whose name is actually on the twelfth stone. 
We know the other 11, but whether it's Matthias or Paul or whomever, the Bible just does not tell us. And so coming to the end of chapter 1, the disciples and others, 120 in all, are there in the upper room waiting for power. That's all they've been told to do. Wait for power. And so, as we now enter into Acts chapter 2, and this brings us into part 3 of our study, we want to read the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2. Part 3, we've entitled Pentecost and the Birth of the Church. Pentecost and the Birth of the Church. Acts 2, from 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came, King James says has fully come, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Now, It says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. That's really the best translation. It's almost as if we're counting off days until the full number of days has been ticked off. We've come to the full number indicating that we've landed on the very date on the calendar called Pentecost. It never ceases to amaze me how every detail in the Word of God is significant. And God, who is sovereign, He wrote the whole book from Genesis to Revelation. And it's all tied together, even though we have 66 different books, many different authors of all different backgrounds, all different time periods, all inspired by the same Holy Spirit to end up with one united volume that we call the Holy Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments fitting together so beautifully, and many of the things that we find in the New Testament were already seen in the Old Testament in types and shadows and things that were pointing toward these realities in the New Testament. Such is the case here. In the Old Testament, the Jews had a number of important feasts throughout the year. One of them was Passover. Another one was Pentecost. And it was spelled out very clearly in the Law of Moses that they were to count off 50 days from the Sabbath of Passover week, 
count off 50 days from that Sabbath to what is called here Pentecost. The word Pentecost actually means 50th. That's what it means, 50th. So that's why it's significant that it says, when this day fully came. We've now come to day 50 in that countdown. And although Jesus merely told them, wait until you are filled with power, he also indicated that it would just be a few days. It wasn't going to be a long wait. He simply told them in chapter 1, in a few days you will be filled with power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, if we do the math, we already learned in Acts 1, after his resurrection, Jesus stayed another 40 days with the apostles, meeting with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God, convincing them with many proofs that he was risen from the dead. And so, if we count off the 40 days that he was with them in his resurrection body, and another 10 days or so that they were there waiting in the upper room, we know now that we've come to the full 50 days because of what we just read. The day of Pentecost had now fully come. This is so beautiful, the way all of these shadows come together in the reality that we are now learning about. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Every year in the Old Testament, they would sacrifice their lambs, apply the blood to the doorpost, just as they had done in Egypt on that first Passover night. They were commanded by God to celebrate that feast every year as a reminder of their deliverance from the Egyptian bondage and, and all of that. But the Passover that they kept year after year in the Old Testament was merely a shadow the real Passover took place on Calvary when the Lamb of God was crucified. And by no coincidence, God scripted and ordained every detail of this whole story of our atonement and salvation so that Jesus' crucifixion would coincide exactly with the Passover week. You can study all of that on your own, in the four Gospels. But Jesus wasn't crucified at just any time of the year. It was all under the control of the sovereign God, and God saw to it that Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, would be crucified during Passover. And ironically, as the priests, the Jewish priests, were there in Jerusalem, slitting the throats of the lambs and applying the blood as they celebrated the Passover, as they had done for many, many years. A hill not too far away, the hill of Calvary, had the real Lamb of God hanging from the tree, being crucified to fulfill all of those Passover feast celebrations. So Christ, the perfect Passover lamb, is crucified during Passover. He is raised from the dead in power and glory three days later, spends 40 days with the apostles after his resurrection, and now the countdown brings us to day 50. And here's where it gets really exciting for me. There were several different names given to this Feast of Pentecost. Uh, you can look up the scriptures. We're not going to do it, but all of the scriptures are given in the notes. During the Passover week in Leviticus 23, we read about this. Uh, 
the 50 days after that Sabbath of Passover mark the beginning of what is known as the Feast of Weeks. It's what it's called in Deuteronomy 16. Or it's also called the Feast of Harvest in Exodus 23.16. It's also called the Day of First Fruits. It has a number of names. They're all referring to the same thing. This was actually a celebration of the ingathering of the harvest. How amazing that 50 days after Passover comes this celebration of harvest, of ingathering the harvest. The risen Christ would now be ascending back to the Father. We saw that in Acts 1, 9-11. The 120 have been waiting in the upper room until day 50 of this countdown is complete. And then on the day of Pentecost, which was a celebration of harvest, the feast of the ingathering, now God is going to reveal to us the real harvest. It's not grains and olives and fruits. The harvest that God is interested in is a worldwide harvest of souls. And the key to that harvest is about to be revealed. It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. By the end of chapter 2, we're going to realize that supernaturally, God has already set the stage so that representatives from all the known nations of the world would already have been exposed to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the good news of the gospel. How amazing. How amazing that right here in Acts 2, we're witnessing the fulfillment of these types and shadows of Passover and Pentecost. And a number of references are given in your notes in Matthew 9 uh, and 10, Luke 10, John 4. Jesus often spoke about a harvest, but he wasn't talking about fruits and vegetables. He was talking about souls. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest field. He's not talking about farmers or workers that go out and gather the grain, the wheat, the harvest from the fields. He's talking about gospel workers who are about to be sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit who can be a part of gathering in the nations, harvesting souls for the kingdom of God. In John 4, Jesus said the fields are already white for harvest. Again, he's not talking about a literal harvest. He's talking about people. And what we're going to see here in Acts 2 is the key to a worldwide harvest. It's not clever plans or programs, although the Holy Spirit may give us plans and programs and strategies. The key to a worldwide harvest of souls gathering in the nations for Jesus Christ is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see that very carefully and very clearly. Passover, 50 days later, Pentecost, we're going to celebrate the ingathering now of the harvest of God. Souls that are saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and added to this organism, this living thing that we're about to see is called the church. Now, more about that a little later. Back to something else I already referred to in verse 1. When this day came, the 50th day fully came, they were ready. They were all together in one place. 
They had resolved any of their differences. They had gotten their lives right. They would confessed their sins. They repented. They were waiting in faith for the promise. They were waiting for the gift of the Father. They were all there joined together in harmony. You know, Psalm 133, I think, is very important to read here. It says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live or dwell together in unity. That word could be translated harmony, and that's actually how it reads in the Spanish Bible. Armonia, harmony. How beautiful it is when brothers and sisters in Christ come together and they, they harmonize. There's actually a difference between these two words. In, in music, if you understand music, you'll be able to, to get this. If we have 120 people singing the exact same note, maybe a middle C, they're singing in unison. That would be unity. But if you have a choir of 120 people singing in harmony, they would all be singing different notes. Maybe C, maybe some singing E, maybe some singing G, but together it makes a more beautiful sound than just 120 people singing the same note. They're singing what a musician would call harmony, three-part harmony. It sounds far richer, far more beautiful than mere unity. So, God is not so much interested in all of us being exactly identical. We're different. There's great diversity in the body of Christ, just as there's great diversity in the human body, but it all works together in the most marvelous way that it produces a harmony. And it goes on to say in Psalm 133, it is like the precious oil. We already saw oil always refers to the anointing. It refers to the Holy Spirit. These disciples had just left the Mount of Olives, where olives were crushed to produce olive oil used for the anointing. This is now referring to the anointing oil that was poured upon Aaron, the high priest's head. It says, it is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes, or some Bibles say down to the skirts of his garments. All his head to toe was now dripping with oil after he was anointed. Verse 3 says, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. I don't know if you can get this picture, but here again, the anointing of the high priest and his whole body receiving this anointing oil, it's a beautiful picture of the anointing that first came upon Christ, the head, but now his body is about to come under that same anointing. The body of Christ is literally being born and formed before our very eyes here in Acts chapter 2. The oil of the Holy Spirit is now being poured out, but they had to first be in one accord, joined together in one place, one heart, one mind, one passion, in unity, or even a term I prefer, in harmony, waiting for the promise of the Father. It says in verse 2, as they've been waiting for a number of days, I like the next word, suddenly. You know, sometimes we wait patiently, for a long time. Literally, they've been counting off 50 days since Passover. 
for this day to fully come. They've been waiting, praying, waiting, counting off the days, waiting, waiting, waiting. Sometimes we wait for a long time for God, for Him to move, for His promise to be fulfilled. And quite often, when God's time comes, and He only knows those appointed times, but when God's time finally arrives, He can move very suddenly. So don't get confused with the patient waiting period and what may happen when God's time fully comes. When the day of Pentecost fully came, it says, suddenly. And in Luke 18, we read about the widow who kept on coming before the judge, kept on pleading, kept on praying, kept on waiting. And it says there that it seems sometimes that God keeps putting us off. But when his time came for that widow, he moved quickly. And so it is here. Now something is suddenly starting to happen. The first thing that happens, we're told, suddenly there's a sound. Sound of a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and it filled the house where they were sitting. Very interesting, every detail that's given here. We're, we're going to see two things in particular mentioned in verses 2 and 3. Wind and fire. Wind and fire. And note also, there is a sound. There is a sound. There is the, the feeling or the sensation that you get when wind is blowing. They felt something in the air. They heard something with their ears, and they saw something. Verse 3 says they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Although God is spirit, God is invisible, He manifests Himself in very real and very tangible ways. And by no coincidence, the word wind is used here. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. We can all relate to wind. We've all felt it blow across our faces, mess up our hair, if we have any, um, blow things around. And, of course, we've seen, maybe some of us have even been in, things like hurricanes or tornadoes, we've seen what a violent wind can do. It moves things around, it uproots them, it carries them from one place to another. Now, we can't see wind. We can't put wind into a box or into a bottle, but we all know wind is real by the effects it has on things that we can see and things that we can feel. It's very interesting that in the Hebrew language, <clears throat> I'm no Hebrew expert, but I've studied this a bit, in the Hebrew language, there's only one word for wind, spirit, or breath. They're all the same Hebrew word, ruach. So if you're trying to talk about the wind in a storm, you would use ruach. If you're trying to refer to the Spirit of God, you would use Ruach. And if you're even talking about your breath or God's breath, you're going to still use the same word, Ruach. And by no accident or coincidence, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the very first evidence that the Holy Spirit has now come, is this evidence of a violent wind. I want to take you to Ezekiel 37. You may remember his vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. 
And in this vision, the word ruach is used repeatedly, and depending on the Bible translation that you use, you may actually see all three of these English words, wind, spirit, and breath, used in the translation, they're all coming from the same identical Hebrew word, ruach. For instance, I'll point them out as we come to them. Ezekiel 37.1, it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. The word spirit there in your notes is in bold um, letters because it's the word ruach. And this would make the best sense here because it's referring to the spirit of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the ruach of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord, and set me in the middle of a valley. We move down to verse 5. You can read the whole vision for yourself. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones, the dry bones that were there in the valley. I will make breath. Breath, you'll notice in the notes, is also in bold letters because it's the same Hebrew word. Ruach. I will make breath enter you. And some Bibles translate it spirit because it's the same word. Spirit, breath, or wind, but it makes more sense. I will make breath enter you because they're dead and they need to come back to life. And this takes us all the way back to Genesis where God breathed the breath of life into man and it was that breath or spirit that brought him to life. I will make Ruach, enter you. Breath, enter you, and you will come to life. Verse 9. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Breath is again in bold letters. Ruach. It could also, and you find this in some Bibles, prophesy to the wind. Or, prophesy to the Spirit. Prophesy, Son of Man, and say to it, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Come from the four winds, that's in bold because it's the same word, ruach, O breath, breath is bold, because it's still the same word, ruach, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So, you could interchange these words as they make more sense. This could even be prophesy to the Spirit, capital S. In other words, call on the Spirit of God, Ezekiel, and say to the Spirit, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O Spirit, O Ruach, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So, it is quite fitting that what we see here in Acts 2, with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, there is the blowing of a violent wind, or breath, or spirit, that's coming from heaven and filling the whole house. And we all know what happens when you have wind and fire. It creates a wildfire. It's a fire that's completely out of control. It rages and just catches everything ablaze in its path. Well, we've now got wind, verse 2, and fire, verse 3. They saw. They didn't imagine this in their heads. They heard the sound of the wind blowing, they felt it, and now they're seeing what looks like tongues of fire coming to rest on each one of their heads. I want to read verse 3 to you from the Message Bible. It says, Then like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit 
spread through their ranks. I like that. The wind is blowing, the fire is falling, and now wildfire is about to spread throughout the ranks of these 120. And Luke, remember Luke, the writer of Acts, is also the writer of the Gospel. Luke mentions this in his Gospel. He knew there would be a connection between the Holy Spirit and fire, because in John 3.16, he records, John answered them all, John the Baptist, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. <clears throat> so let's, let's just pause for a second before we go any further. Jesus had to be glorified. We learned that in John 7. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given when he was here on earth because he had not yet been glorified. And that seems to point to his final glorification and exaltation of ascending back to the right hand of, of the Father. He has now ascended to the Father. By the time we come to the end of Acts 1, he is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. He's the one that is now going to send the gift, the promise of the Holy Spirit. So, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. They are now going to be baptized into or with the Holy Spirit and with fire. They're going to be immersed, dunked into, filled with the Spirit of God and the fire of God. And so, each detail here is significant. It's the day of Pentecost, the day of um, harvest or ingathering. The Spirit of God is what they've been waiting for. His arrival is announced loudly with the blowing of a violent wind, and it is seen, visibly seen, with tongues of fire coming and resting on each one of their heads. And then, in verse 4, the promise that they've been waiting for finally is coming. All of them, we all know what all means, all of them, every single one of those men and women in the upper room, with no exception, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the promise of the Father, and we will learn later in this chapter, this promise was not just for the twelve apostles, it wasn't just for the hundred and twenty, the promise of the Holy Spirit is for every believer, every believer, no exception, man, woman, child, it doesn't matter who you are, God has already promised you the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the exact same experience we're reading about here in Acts 2. The promise is for every one of you, Peter would be preaching later in this chapter. We're told in Romans 2.11, God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't have any favorites. This wasn't a special touch or a special manifestation just for a few chosen apostles. The promise of the Spirit is for every single believer. And as I've been sharing in recent days, we need to go even further beyond that. Not only is the promise for every believer, every believer must have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We can never, we, we just can't possibly live the Christian life without the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We can't possibly have a real church 
without the baptism and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And what they were told, wait until you are filled with power. If we don't have that power, we can't possibly be the church that we're about to learn about here in Acts 2. No power, no church. No Holy Spirit, no church. The birth of the church centers around this experience that we just read about. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, Luke, the writer of the Gospel and the writer of Acts, had already uh, recorded this for us in his Gospel. In Luke 11.13, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Only one thing we need to do is ask. Ask in faith and then receive because it is a gift out of the goodness of His heart, the grace of God, the gracious disposition of our Father in Heaven. He wants to give the Holy Spirit to every one of his children. And then in John 7, we refer to this a bit ago, verses 37 to 39, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus waited until the final day, and this was actually the Feast of Tabernacles, another one of the feasts. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, I pointed this out before, Jesus very rarely raised his voice. Some of us preachers, we shout and holler a lot. Jesus, it's not said often in the Gospels that he ever raised his voice, but this is one occasion where he did. He really wanted to get this point across. He stood, further emphasizing, this is a very important announcement. Stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone, I love that word, anyone, anyone is thirsty, It doesn't matter who you are. You and I are both anyone's. Here's the catch, though. If anyone is thirsty, you see, you got to have a desire for God. You got to be thirsty for the power of God. You got to be thirsty for the holiness of God. If this doesn't stir your heart, nothing will. If you're still lackadaisical and apathetic and I don't know if I want anything. I don't know if I need anything. I think I've got whatever I need. Then this won't work. It's not going to help you. But if you're thirsty, if something inside you says, I need more of God, I need more of His power, I want to go further beyond where I am in my Christian life, I'm thirsty. If that sounds like you, then listen to the rest of what Jesus has to announce here. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Seek Jesus. Draw close to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Tell him in your own words, God, I'm thirsty. I need more. Fill me, fill me, fill me. He says, if you're thirsty, come to me and do what's most natural. Drink. How do we drink? We open our mouth. There's a promise in Psalm 81. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So we're coming to Jesus thirsty. We're coming to Him in faith. We're coming with our mouth open, expecting Him to fill it. And then He confirms in the next verse, this is all about coming in faith. Whoever believes in Me, anyone, whoever, believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams, uh, more literally, and the King James gets it right, rivers, not just little creeks or little rivulets of water, rivers of living water are going to gush, flow out from within him. What in the world is he talking about? Verse 39, by this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, 
Before we go any further, and we're not going to be able to go too much further tonight, we need to pause again. This was a very dramatic experience. And God teaches us throughout His Word, from Genesis to Revelation, what He wants us to do is to believe in Him. He wants us to trust in Him. But when we believe in God, very real things are manifested. We have very real feelings, very real experiences. These are not imaginations. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And what happened to them as they were there waiting in faith, seeking Jesus, waiting for the promise of the Spirit, they had a very real experience, a powerful experience. They heard the sound of a violent, mighty rushing wind. They saw tongues of fire resting on each one of their heads. And remember, they already knew what to expect. Power, dunamis, dynamite is going to come upon you and inside you when you receive the Holy Spirit. Putting it another way, we just read here in John 7, when the Spirit of God comes upon you and you are baptized in the Spirit, it's going to be like a river coming out of your innermost being. This isn't some imaginary uh, religious experience. You're going to feel a river coming out of you. It's going to be a very real experience. That's why I'm convinced when a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit, they know that they know that they know that they have received the gift and the promise of God. And if you're still not sure, I would keep pressing in, I would keep believing, I would keep thirsting, I would keep seeking God until you are endued with power. Until this river comes gushing out of your innermost being. Now, we're going to need to pause and stop in just a moment and return right here next time to talk a lot more about the first sign or the first evidence after they were filled with the Spirit. This is a topic that has created quite a bit of controversy, and we're going to try to clear up that controversy next time. The first thing that manifested after they were filled with the Holy Spirit is they began to speak in other tongues. Not words that they were making up. Speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now the Holy Spirit has come inside of them and He's actually enabling them to speak in other languages. This is a supernatural language that they're talking. And I want to reiterate again. Up until this time, Jesus has mentioned nothing at all about speaking in tongues. He never told them, wait in the upper room until you speak in tongues, and then you'll know that you got it. He didn't say that. He said, wait for power. Even in Acts 1, there's no hint about when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll receive power, and the first evidence will be speaking in tongues. They didn't even know what to expect, except they were waiting for power. And obviously, the Spirit of God came, and Jesus can't lie, so power came upon them, and we'll see uh, evidence of the power of God in coming chapters. But the very first thing that happens to them, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit spoke. They began to speak. Their vocal cords were vibrating. Their lips were moving. Their tongues were being used by the Holy Spirit. But they were the ones speaking. Whatever kind of a voice they had, I imagine uh, it was quite recognizable that Peter was talking, or James was talking, or John was talking. But they're talking a language that they never knew. They never learned it in school. 
the Holy Spirit is supernaturally enabling them to speak this language. The tongues of fire that they saw resting on each head was symbolic of the new tongues they would be speaking in by the Holy Spirit. Now, this speaking in tongues is mentioned in a number of places in the New Testament, and we're going to look at all of them next time, because I want all of us to have a clear and a thorough understanding, because there's a lot of confusion in Christian circles about speaking in tongues. But let me finish just on this note. Speaking in tongues, Jesus and the apostles taught that this would be a sign Okay, in Mark 16, verse 17, this was the, <clears throat> excuse me, this was the only time Jesus mentioned speaking in new tongues while he was here on the earth. And this is all he says. These signs will accompany those who believe. Pause. These signs will accompany those who believe doesn't say it's just for apostles, just for prophets, just for the first 120 in the upper room. This is for any believer. These signs will accompany. I like that. They're going to they're gonna tag along. Wherever you go, they're going to go with you. They're going to accompany you. And it's for anyone who is a believer. That's the only qualification. A believer. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons, and they will speak in new tongues. He goes on with some other signs, but I want to stop here just to show that speaking in tongues is a sign. Paul would use that same expression in... 1 Corinthians 14, when he refers to the speaking of tongues in the church, he says it is a sign to unbelievers. Speaking in tongues is a sign. So, the very first sign, the very first evidence, if you will, that the Holy Spirit has come upon these 120 believers is this phenomenon of speaking in tongues. Uh, let me just quickly read two other uh, descriptions of this in the book of Acts, and we'll have to stop here for tonight. In Acts 10, 44-46, when Peter would first take the gospel to the Gentiles, when he went to the household of Cornelius, we read, verse 44, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all, there's my favorite word, all who heard the message. Not just a few. Holy Spirit came on all of them, just like he did on the day of Pentecost. Well, how do we know that? The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. How did they know that? Verse 46 says, for, that's how they knew, for, or because they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Man, I would have loved to see that. Here's Peter, he's preaching to this house full of Gentiles, and suddenly they're all bursting out in tongues, praising God, in foreign languages. Peter didn't give them a, a, a teaching on how to speak in tongues. He's just preaching the good news to them. God comes, fills every one of them in the house with the Holy Spirit, and again, the sign that bears witness to that fact is they were all heard speaking in tongues. Finally, Acts 19, 1-6, and here's where we will have to park for tonight. 
Acts 19.1 While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You know, I love Paul. He gets right to the point. He meets these disciples. He doesn't ask them, how's the weather been here? What's been happening with the stock market? Uh, how are you all doing? He goes right to the point. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And you know, I find this same kind of ignorance in many of the churches we visit. They've never even heard about the Holy Spirit. They're not even sure what the baptism in the Holy Spirit is. No, we haven't heard of it. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the, the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So, after waiting, suddenly the Holy Spirit comes, because God promised this. It's the promise of the Father. They've been waiting in faith for the promise, the day finally arrives, and all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. Different terms are used in the book of Acts for the same experience. They were baptized with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. The Spirit came upon them, uh, all referring to this same experience. They received the Spirit. They were promised power when that happened. But the first sign of the arrival of the Holy Spirit is this phenomenon of speaking in other languages that they had never learned. They're speaking, but the Spirit is enabling them. The Holy Spirit is giving them a whole new vocabulary, a whole new language. And we will see next time that in this instance, it's not always true, but in this instance, the languages that they were speaking were languages known to other people. These were known human languages, but certainly not languages that Peter, James, and John had learned in school. But God so orchestrated this whole event that he had representatives from every nation there in Jerusalem because of Passover and Pentecost for this event for the, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and they, one by one, begin to hear these different believers speaking in Italian or Phrygian or whatever these different languages were. Every one of them recognized their mother tongues coming from these spirit-baptized disciples who had been waiting there in the upper room. And obviously, this created quite a stir. It sets the stage for Peter to preach the gospel to all of those Jews from every nation under heaven. And literally, in the first day of the church, this is where the church is born on the day of Pentecost, on its first day, God sees to it, that a representative from every nation under heaven would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. How wonderfully God arranged and orchestrated this whole thing so that on the exact day of Pentecost, he would begin this great ingathering of souls from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And we'll look much more in depth next time at what the New Testament says about speaking in tongues. Not what the guy on the radio or the TV says, not what the 
Baptist Church or the Catholic Church or the Methodist Church says, but what does the Word of God say about this thing speaking in other tongues or speaking in unknown languages? More about that next time. We'll have to wait. Let's close in prayer and thank God for the promise of the Spirit. It is for everyone. It's for anyone who is thirsty. It's for whoever believes in Christ and comes to Him expecting, asking, and receiving this this free gift. Father God in heaven, we praise You. You're so faithful. You are so good. You are so gracious. Not only did you give us Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried and to rise the third day, proving to the world that he was and is the Son of God, the Christ, the promised Messiah. But he stayed around for 40 more days, convincing his apostles that he was alive, He ascended up to your right hand before their very eyes and told them to wait because soon the promise, the gift, the baptism of the Holy Spirit would be coming. And they would know it because they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them to be witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Father, we thank you that you fulfilled your promise as they were there waiting in the upper room. When the day of Pentecost fully came, you poured out your Spirit. The Spirit of God came like a mighty rushing wind. Tongues of fire rested on their heads. More importantly, their tongues were set ablaze with the fire of the Holy Spirit. And they were baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Lord, we thank you because you know better than we that we cannot live the Christian life, we cannot become the church you've called us to be with anything less than the fullness of power, the fullness of the Holy Spirit that you poured out on these disciples in the upper room. God, I pray for anyone and everyone listening to this Bible study, everyone would be filled with the Holy Spirit. They would experience what Jesus promised, a river, a river of living water gushing from their innermost being as you, God, baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Father, teach us more about the Holy Spirit. Teach us more about this thing called the church that has now been born through the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. God, continue to bring revival to our lives, to our churches. Continue to visit us with the demonstration of your spirit and power, with the manifestation of glory and power through the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray your blessing on each and every one now. Keep us under the blood of Jesus. Keep us by the power of the Holy Spirit as we are being prepared as that bride, that glorious church, without spot, without wrinkle or blemish, waiting for your soon return. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.